0: This is a CBC Podcast.
1: Hi, I'm Laura Lynch, and you're listening to What on Earth? In any big city in Canada, they snake across, over, under, and around. Ribbons of highways meant to speed journeys often end up in a standstill at rush hour. Toronto is no exception, with four, six, and eight-lane roads spilling into an expanding suburbia. They are to some vital networks carrying people and goods. To others, they're a symbol of development gone awry, hurting the climate more than helping residents. It's all come to a head in the fight over Highway 413. Once dead, the proposed road has returned, and it's now at the heart of a fierce debate about the future of our cities in an era of climate change. For starters, let's hear what it's like on the road for one man who drives for a living.
2: My name is Greg Heisman. I work for Mackey Transportation in Oshawa, Ontario.
1: Heisman has been driving trucks for decades. Most of his customers are in Toronto, others are farther east. Day in and day out, he winds his way along the region's fares, using all but the one that charges a toll.
2: The main highways are Highway 401. We also use the QEW, 403. Uh, the 407 is kind of out of bounds for us because of the cost. But uh, when you take a look at the volume of traffic on the 401, uh, for instance, last week alone, there was a major accident in the 401 at 400, and that tied up the eastbound lanes for the better part of the day. Uh, just brought the eastbound lanes to a complete stop.
1: He says that happens almost every week. And even on the days without accidents, he says it still tests his patience, taking two hours to drive just 75 kilometres.
2: It just, it's stop and go, stop and go. The volume is unbelievable. Last time I looked, there were uh, in excess of 40,000 trucks a day on the 401 through the Toronto area. And anything that they could do to alleviate some of that congestion, some of that volume would be a tremendous help.
1: Gino Rosati agrees. He's a councillor in Vaughan and the York region. Vaughan has officially withdrawn its support of 413, but Rosati is still hoping it goes ahead, saying the highway could relieve gridlock.
3: We're not talking about the need of today, but we're looking at the need in the future. The York region will grow to over 2 million people by 2051. And I think that
1: infrastructure and what's needed to meet that road is
3: important.
1: He thinks the project could have spin-off benefits too. I
3: believe that uh, uh, when people cannot move and they're stranded on the road, it's not good for the economy and it's not good for the environment either because the emission will be much higher.
1: We contacted Ontario's Ministry of Transportation for comment. A spokesperson told us the province does plan to follow through on an environmental assessment. But she also added, and I quote, Without strong action, the projected population growth will overwhelm our existing infrastructure and make life more expensive for working families. We need our roads infrastructure to keep up. Clearly, the resurrection of the highway project that had been shelved is great news to some. To Mark Winfield, though, the second coming is more of a nightmare.
0: It is being referred to as the zombie highway.
1: Proposed decades ago, then killed in 2018, and now brought back to life by Premier Doug Ford. Winfield says research paints a grim picture of the impact of the new highway. And he should know. He's a professor of environmental and urban change at York University. And he says Highway 413 is, in fact, a pathway to problems.
0: The biggest issue is that that this thing would essentially be a highway to sprawl. um, That it will cause what is termed induced demand. That if, if you build it, they will come, and they will come in automobiles.
1: Winfield says that's not just in the short term.
0: This return to the notion that we're going to expand the highway network forever outwards just sort of takes us back into a different age. The problem, of course, is that once you build this kind of infrastructure, you embed the transportation patterns essentially for centuries.
1: And with that, more greenhouse gas emissions.
0: So this just seems to be, I mean, it's almost as if if you were trying, at least in in this part of the world, to make the greenhouse gas emission problem worse. um, This would be a very, very good strategy to follow.
1: 413 would pave over lush agricultural land, erase some wetlands, and damage as many as 200 more. Research shows that makes flooding worse and compromises the water people drink. But beyond all the analysis and the written word, are people who have chosen to live and work in the area. Jenny LaForestier is one of them. She lives in Caledon, Ontario. Jenny, hello.
4: Hi, how are you? I'm
1: fine, thanks. Can, first of all, can you... Just describe for me where you live and why you live there.
4: I live in Belle Fountain, which is a northwest community in Caledon, right near the Credit River. It is a very special environmental area. It's a UNESCO World Biosphere. You know, it's a a beautiful place to live. And all the locals are very, uh, very serious about their
1: environmental stewardship here. And what do you see outside your window?
4: Um I actually live on a on a piece of property that's um about 150 years old. I have a heritage fence in front of me and two large Norway spruces that are about 200 years old and a small two-lane quiet street and a stream on the left that has brook trout that flows into the Credit River.
1: That sounds lovely. Now, you you actually live close to an area that developers want to use as a quarry to mine for the kind of gravel and material they need to build the highway. What's your concern with that? My concern is absolutely huge. The material
4: that's being excavated right now is being taken below the water table. We have three pit proposals in Caledon right now. So... They are aggressively
1: stockpiling gravel for this highway. Even though it hasn't been approved yet?
4: Yes. Even though it hasn't been approved yet, there have been community meetings on a blasting quarry for uh, the James Dick quarry that is excavating below the water table. And there is another one that is sort of in the works for an expansion as well. Uh, They're in meetings to uh, garner public support for that, although it doesn't seem like they need. Public support.
1: So you're concerned then about the water, I gather, from what you're saying about where they're going?
4: Yes, I'm concerned about the water table because they're excavating so deep below it. And I'm concerned how that will impact the Credit. There has already been notice that the Olympia pit has been impacting the Credit River on three tributaries north of me. So that's a deep concern because that feeds into the, the Credit River and that winds its way all the way down to Lake Ontario.
1: Now you've spoken out at council meetings and, and you've linked this, this proposed highway to the issue of climate change. Why? Well,
4: I think, you know, paving over 2,000 hectares of land, you know, 60 kilometers long, 170 meters wide, crossing the Humber and the Credit watersheds and the Etobicoke Creeks at a time when we have a global pandemic and a global climate crisis and spending $10 billion to do so and impacting all the communities along that route for a highway that seems to be really only for the developers that want to expropriate land and, and build alongside it
1: now in some ways Jenny this can sound like a really local issue I'm wondering why you think it's a bigger story for Ontario I think it's a huge story for
4: our water security
1: considering so many streams are already
4: degraded and, and are feeling the impacts of climate change you know the the highway will only create more pollution it's it's everyone you know in the in the entire province
1: who's going to be paying for this All right, Jenny, thank you very much for telling us your concerns. We're now going to switch over to another part of Caledon because we want to talk about the future of farmland in all of this. Phil Winters is a farmer in Caledon. Hello. Hello. Tell me what the land around you looks like. So
5: uh, we are in the northwest corner of Peel Region, Caledon, and we're on a heritage farm here that was homesteaded around 1820, by the Pinckney family and so the remaining 27 acres we operate as an organic and regenerative farm here uh, growing primarily hops for the craft brewing industry and so we're surrounded by mostly pasture land a portion of the Credit River tributary passes through our land which we are in charge of protecting with the Conservation Authority and a lot of old growth apple and uh, maple trees all surrounding us.
1: If the highway's built what would change?
5: Well, I get the question occasionally. Well, why, why wouldn't you be in favor of this? Because we run uh, sort of a tourism industry here on our farm as well, with a, a small on-farm brewery, and people are under the assumption that well, this is great for your business and your farm because more people will be coming here. But our concern, you know, primarily is around is around food security and uh, and tied into what I, you know I consider the biggest challenge as a farmer right now is, is climate change and global warming and the uncertainty of. What each season looks like for us, we think it's the most difficult time ever to be a farmer, and this just accentuates and accelerates you know, these these concerns for us. We're not going to be able to see it, though we will be uh, inheriting some of the particulate and pollution that will come off that road, but I won't see it or hear it directly on our farm.
1: But you're still concerned about the road, even though it's not that close to you?
5: Well, we're concerned about it on, on a larger scale in terms of, of the reasons that it's being built, and for us, it's you know, the government gets very involved and loves to and subsidizes all sorts of important infrastructure around, you know, transportation and water, but they're failing to take into account the importance of agricultural land and our conservation land here, which is a minute portion of the land that's left, really, in Ontario, yet is providing all this free environmental, what you'd say, sort of goods and services of... Um, You know, providing air quality, oxygen generation, the biodiversity it supports, it's carbon sequestration in the soil, um, climate change mitigation, nutrient cycling, pollination, habitat, water quality. You know, these are the the things we should be looking at first and foremost when making long-term decisions that affect, you know, ideally seven generations down the road. And we just think the plan for this highway is short-sighted and driven by the wrong sort of policy levers.
1: What do you think will happen if this project goes ahead?
5: Well, I foresee to some degree, I mean, again, you know, mounting opposition to this as people are are paying more attention, I think, than than they did in the past. Um, I like to go back and think of the tomogamy, you know, lockdowns that protesters will get in the way I mean, we're just hoping that that will not be the case. Though many believe it is a done deal, and we'll look back on it, you know, in a generation or two, as a huge folly, and uh, and there will be people to blame for for moving forward in such a you know errant way.
1: Jenny Laforesté, Phil Winters, thank you to both of you for talking to me about this.
2: Thank,
5: thank you. Thank you so much.
1: So that's the view from Caledon. A bit further south in Brampton is Malkit Sundu. She's a community organizer with the David Suzuki Foundation and she works with cities like Brampton to figure out ways to cut greenhouse gases. Malkit, hello. Hi, Laura. Your work is focused on the region around the city of Toronto and it's often referred to as the 905 region for its area code. Why are you concentrating on that area?
6: There's a number of reasons why. Um, One of the main ones is that these Regions are mostly suburban areas, and so they face a lot of um, very different challenges to tackling the climate crisis in comparison to cities like Toronto that are are large metropolis cities. The other main reason is that the communities that make up the 905 region are also very different. So you see a lot of um, newcomer Canadians, a lot of racialized communities, Black, Indigenous people of color. Um, but also equity-seeking communities as well. And these communities traditionally have not been served by climate policies and climate action. And that's something that our team is very much so interested in, um, finding out how municipalities can, can create policies that take these communities' needs into account.
1: Well, let's use Brampton as an example because you actually live there. How is Brampton feeling the effects of climate change?
6: So the city feels the effects of climate change in a number of different ways. Racialized communities specifically, they feel it in their electricity bills, actually, and in their home energy bills. So as we're seeing seasons fluctuate and change, you're using more AC in the summer and you're using more heat in the winters. And so it's created an affordability issue here in Brampton um, because there are already communities here that are struggling. And so this added cost as a result of climate change is is just making life even harder.
1: Are there things beyond um, paying the bills that affect Brampton?
6: Yep. So flooding is another issue here. We're seeing this not just in Brampton, but all across southern Ontario. But as um, we have more rainfall coming into our regions, there is a higher risk for flooding, um, especially In houses where we have a lot of basement apartments, that causes a really big issue for cities like Brampton.
1: um, Let's talk about transportation, and by which I mean cars, buses, trucking. They generate a lot of emissions. I'm wondering what that looks like on the ground in Brampton.
6: Um, in Brampton, transportation emissions actually make up 60% of Brampton's emissions. It is the largest contributor to greenhouse gas emissions here in Brampton. Um, And you can see that when you when you come to Brampton, you see like most suburban cities, it's very, very car dependent. Um, Majority of people here drive to wherever they need to go. And the reason for that is because we don't have public transit systems that are convenient enough or frequent enough to make people want to take them right Um, one of the reasons why the 413 is is not the best idea for this region is that money could be much better spent um, if it was invested in in things like public transit here as your population grows and grows and grows which we know is going to happen significantly in these areas what you're finding is congestion is actually worsening and worsening and it will reach a point where it's worse than it is even now and we've seen this pattern repeat itself in Ontario for many many years and for some reason the province is insisting on on continuing that cycle instead of breaking it.
1: So give me your vision for Brampton um, with the Brampton that you'd like to see that, that that is changed from one that relies on on these highways
6: a lot of Bramptonians are essential workers. So we have a lot of folks here who work in factories, including my family members. We have folks that work in grocery stores, people that work in hospitals as nurses, and personal support workers, and so the needs of this community are very different, and so the vision is unique too. So most people in Brampton, they never really stopped moving during the pandemic, and we saw that with our transit ridership. We saw that it was actually one of the least impacted transit systems in Ontario, and so uh, my vision for Brampton at least has no space for another superhighway that is not going to solve any of the issues that we have here Um, My vision for Brampton is a city where we we invest that money instead in things like bus rapid transit. So having dedicated lanes for buses, um, having dedicated bike lanes on roads and having ample space for pedestrians so people can get around safely, affordably, um, and quickly without depending super heavily on cars.
1: You painted this vision for Brampton, which sounds um, lovely. Um, part of it is something called Heritage Heights. Um, and that I think that's key to what you're talking about. Tell me what Highway 413 would do to the idea of Heritage Heights. Tell me what it is and what Fort 13 might do to it.
6: There's this neighborhood in Brampton called Heritage Heights, um, which is a really exciting visionary kind of project that the city of Brampton is working on right now. So they're looking at things like more density housing, more mixed use housing, things like more public transit, again, stronger public transit, streets that are made to be safe for everyone. So cyclists, pedestrians, folks that take public transit, drivers, etc., but the proposed Highway 413 actually goes right through that, that neighborhood and it completely bulldozes um, all of the plans that the city has created over many years for that neighborhood. And it makes a lot of their, their ideas essentially impossible to carry out if you have a gigantic six to eight lane highway going right through it.
1: I think I know the answer to this next question, but I will ask it anyway. We don't yet know what the the fate is of of this highway project. What are you hoping for?
6: Well, as somebody who lives here, but also as somebody who works um, with the David Suzuki Foundation on climate issues, I'm definitely hoping that um, this doesn't get approved. I'm hoping that the federal government steps in with an environmental assessment um, to make sure that this highway doesn't happen.
1: Thank you for, for talking to me today about this. Yeah, Thank you for having me, Laura. Paper or plastic?
5: Oh, I forgot my own bags. Um, plastic. No, wait,
4: paper. Hang on. Which one's better? I don't know. Don't stress, Neil. The podcast Living Planet is here to help. We know you want to do what's right for the planet, but you're busy and you have to make
6: a thousand small decisions every day. So we endeavor to answer... What's better?
1: Cotton or polyester?
6: Tea or coffee? For answers to these environmental conundrums and your questions, subscribe to Living Planet wherever you listen to podcasts.
1: There's another potentially deadly impact of building more and more highways. It's on people's health. Some of the effects are direct. Others are tied to the longer-term buildup that accompanies growing greenhouse gas emissions and climate change. Dr. Samantha Green joins me now to talk about this part of the Highway 413 debate. Hello. Hi. Hi. Now, you are a family doctor, but you're also a doctor who's actively involved in environmentalism and climate change. Tell me why this proposed highway drew your interest.
7: This highway is just wrong for so many reasons. It's going to lead to deleterious health effects directly, as you said, leading to an increase in small particulate matter from traffic-related air pollution. We know that fine particulate air pollution kills more than 8,000 Canadians every year. And just in the greater Toronto-Hamilton area, it causes about 900 deaths annually. We also know that more time spent in a car is bad for your health. People who commute by car have increased rates of obesity, increased rates of mental illness and depression, increased rates of substance use disorders like alcohol use, and less physical activity more generally. And we know that suburban development is also worse for health. People are healthier who live in walking and biking-friendly communities. Uh, People have better relationships with their neighbours. People have improved mental health, and they also have improved physical health because they actually get increased physical activity just by living in these pedestrian-friendly and bicycle-friendly neighbourhoods.
1: Do you see all of those um, problems that you just raised as linked to climate change?
7: Absolutely. I mean, so these are all the immediate effects. And then what we're doing, if, we're, if, if this highway got built, it would be baking in at least 30 years of this unhealthy development when what we actually need to be doing is putting money into densification, more walking-friendly communities, and less infrastructure that's built around the car and more infrastructure that's built for pedestrians, cyclists and transit.
1: I'm wondering, have you ever treated patients who have those kinds of related medical problems that you mentioned?
7: I mean, absolutely. I've treated patients who uh, live close to highways and have asthma exacerbations related to traffic-related air pollution. And it's always, of course, people who are already marginalized who live next to major highways. I also very frequently see patients in my practice who have to commute long distances by car, And they end up spending more time in traffic and they end up with worse mental health and worse physical health.
1: In your experience, do developers and politicians take the kinds of concerns you're outlining into account?
7: Uh, Some developers do. Some developers who are thinking about the future and and thinking about building climate crisis-friendly communities, and certainly um, many don't. And this is something we have to change because... Climate change is here. I mean, we, we have already seen one degree of warming, and so we need to be building communities that cause less climate change and that are more friendly to a warmer planet and a warmer country. And it's also it's just we are morally obliged to be thinking about this uh, for our own health, for the health of our children.
1: But if I can try to get inside the minds of those who would support this project, they might argue that, that, that more housing and more transportation is needed for a growing population with millions more expected to live in the Toronto region in the coming years. Isn't a lack of proper housing also a health issue?
7: Oh, absolutely. And I see that all the time i mean the problems that are linked with inadequate housing and and we certainly need to be building adequate housing uh affordable housing for everyone and that needs to happen within our current city limits we need to maintain our green spaces we need access to nature both for our mental health and for climate mitigation and we we need to be building more affordable housing within our city limits and these climate friendly and also physical and mental health friendly communities where people can walk and bike and um, be friends with their neighbors and not be cooped up inside a car commuting for hours a day.
1: Now, correct me if I'm mistaken, but you, you don't live in the path of this proposed highway, do you? I do not. Why do you care?
7: I, I care because it just doesn't make sense on so many levels. It doesn't make sense for all the reasons already listed. Uh, if the highway were built, it would be a permanent decision that's causing damage to our generation and also future generations. And so we, we can't let 30 years of sprawl be, be baked into um, you know, our community
1: How many other doctors do you know of who are actively involved in campaigning against these kinds of projects? Not necessarily 413, but these kinds of projects.
7: Well, there's hundreds of us actually across the country. Um, In Ontario alone, I would say there are probably one to 200 doctors who are concerned about the climate crisis and concerned about building policies and planning that is going to help mitigate the climate crisis and not and not worsen it
1: all right um samantha green thank you very much for speaking with me thanks so much Dr. Samantha Green is with the Department of Family and Community Medicine at the University of Toronto, and she's one of dozens of scientists from across Canada who have written to the Federal Environment Minister, Jonathan Wilkinson, saying they're, quote, concerned that the highway will exacerbate the climate emergency. They want a separate federal environmental assessment. The risks to farmland, trees, rivers and more have sparked some people to take action, including one man who doesn't particularly like going door-to-door or talking to strangers and politicians. Still, that's what Tony Malferas started to do when he learned the 413 was back on the table.
3: We had a handful of us in the community that said, this is wrong, uh, and we started knocking on doors. But, you know, I think when you knock on a door, you're not sure what you're going to get on the other side. I think we thought we were going to get a lot more pushback, that we didn't, but I, I think the common thing we got from the person on the other side of the door, was I didn't know that. I didn't know that, or I knew that they were talking about this, but I didn't realize it was this big, it was this close, and it was going to be so impactful. And it's going to have long-lasting implications environmentally to us as a community. We'll lose the green space that you know we go to. We'll lose the green space that the rabbits like to run around in, and, and, it, and it's wrong. I'm saying as as an individual that is a conservative-minded supporter, so I I tend to be, you know, more an individual that that is proactive on on the business development side. You know, it isn't business at all costs. There has to be a social conscience and, and an environmental conscience. The more I listen, the more I understand, the more I see how decisions are being made, the more I think that we've lost that moral compass.
1: Tony Malfara lives in Kleinberg, Ontario. Before we go, we want to hear from you. Canada and the United States have set new targets for emissions cuts, but just how will they achieve them? We'd love to hear your thoughts. Drop us a line. The email is earth at cbc.ca. Thanks this week to the What on Earth team, Associate Producer, Serena Renner, Producers, Lisa Johnson and Molly Siegel. Our engineer is Matthias Wolfson. Manisha Janakaram is our Senior Producer And our executive producer is Joan Melanson. I'm Laura Lynch. Thank you for listening.
6: For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.